the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. James Blend is producing... Clark Hilton engineering today's program. Today we're going to talk with Lathan Watts. He's the director of legal communications for First Liberty Institute. We'll talk about the Democratic presidential hopeful Beto O'Rourke, his call to end the tax-exempt status of any church that opposes same-sex marriage. We'll also talk with Shundron Thomas. He is the author of Discover Joy in Work, Transforming Your Occupation into Your Vocation. It's not one of those lightweight books that just says, you know, suck it up and be happy. This is a book that actually offers some biblical instruction on how to view work in general, uh, but more specifically how to uh, take on the challenges of every day um, walking into the office, doing a great job, and then going home again at the end of the day. First, taking a look at some of the headlines. President Trump unloaded on Joe and Hunter Biden on Friday over their Ukrainian business dealings in Minnesota, at one of one point bringing the crowd to its feet by charging that Biden's only useful trade as vice president was his um, ability to Well, I'm not even going to go there. Anyway, scores of Trump supporters as well as pro-impeachment demonstrators lined up hours before the event. At least one protester was photographed pouring milk in uh, on uh, his face to counter the effects of pepper spray as the chaos unfolded with pro-Trump hats being uh, lit on fire. And some demonstrators harassed police and assaulted Trump supporters chanting, lock him up. Uh, Marie uh, Yavankovich, the former U.S. envoy to Kiev and someone President Trump had privately called bad news, is scheduled uh, was scheduled last week for a potentially explosive transcribed interview with lawmakers and staff on Capitol, Capitol Hill on Friday as Democrats intensified their impeachment inquiry. However, after the White House blocked the U.S. ambassador to the EU, Gordon Sandholm, from testifying shortly before his planned appearance on Tuesday, it remained unclear whether she would appear uh, at all. The White House announced uh, it would not comply at all with what uh, it called Democrats' unconstitutional proceedings. The president and his surrogates were uh, painted, have painted her as a rogue State Department employee with an anti Trump political bias. Energy Secretary Rick Perry on Thursday became the latest Trump administration official to be subpoenaed in connection with the House impeachment inquiry as a trio of House Democratic Committee chairmen requested documents related to uh, Ukraine. According to multiple reports, the White House gave a politically appointed official the authority to keep nearly $400 million in aid to Ukraine on hold after long-serving budget staff members questioned the legality of delaying the funds, a shift that um, House Democrats are investigating. And two associates of Rudy Giuliani last week made their initial appearance before a federal judge on Thursday, less than 24 hours after they were arrested on campaign finance violations while trying to board an international flight with one-way tickets to Dulles International Airport outside Washington. Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman appeared in federal court in Alexandria, Virginia, to face a four-count indictment alleging that they, along with two other co-defendants, conspired to violate a ban on foreign donations and contributions in connection with federal and state elections. Parnas and Fruman 
uh, were reportedly involved in Giuliani's efforts to urge Ukrainian officials to investigate Joe Biden and his family. House Democrats on Thursday subpoenaed them both as part of the impeachment inquiry. Trump said Thursday he didn't uh, know Parnas and Furman and had, hadn't spoken with Giuliani about them, although photos posted online confirmed that the president and son Donald Trump had at least briefly met the pair and had uh, their photos taken. President answered that by saying he has his photo taken with a lot of people. This is a developing story. An explosion was reported on Friday on an Iranian oil tanker about 60 miles off the coast of Saudi Arabia in what was being eyed as a terrorist attack. The tanker, which is owned by the National Iranian Oil Company, suffered serious damage. The semi-official ISNA news agency reported, according to Reuters, the tanky, tanker rather was located on the Red Sea near the port of Jeddah. This was no immediate acknowledgement, or rather there was none, uh, from the kingdom amid heightened tensions across the Middle East. The reported explosion comes approximately a month after the U.S. alleged Iranian involvement in attacks on oil tankers near the Straits of Hormuz, Strait, singular, of Hormuz, something denied by Tehran. Oil prices started rising immediately following the reports of the explosion. House GOP Conference Chairwoman Liz Cheney along with 20 Republican colleagues, uh, said Thursday that legislation would be introduced to sanction Turkey for its military offensive against U.S.-backed Kurdish forces in northern Syria. The announcement came as Turkey's defense minister reported on Thursday that more than 150 Kurdish forces have been mowed down since the assault began on Wednesday. There's an update. We'll talk about that later in the program. And blockbuster um, allegations against former Today Show host Matt Lauer and cover-up accusations against NBC News executives may displease advertisers but probably won't scare them off, ad industry insiders say. I don't think that advertisers are going to be happy. Eric Schiffer, CEO of Patriarch uh, Group and DigitalMarketing.com. But I don't see mass exodus out of NBC because of what was perhaps a poorly managed set of circumstances, end quote. Journalist Ronan Farrell's forthcoming book, Catch and Kill reportedly includes allegations that Lauer, who was fired in November of 2017, assaulted sexually a colleague while covering the 2017 Winter Olympics in Sochi, Russia. NBC is facing new questions about the firing, what uh, managers knew and when they knew it, as well as a possible quid pro quo negotiation with film producer Harvey Weinstein, who is nearing a trial in his own sexual assault case. Today brings in more than $500 million a year for NBC Universal and its parent Comcast. Lawyers for the CIA officer whose whistleblower complaint helped ignite an impeachment inquiry into President Trump have asked Congress whether their client could submit testimony in writing instead of appearing in person. As uh, late as uh, today, the chairman of um, the committee, uh, Representative Schiff, has indicated perhaps they don't even need to interview the whistleblower, a developing story. And The Hill reports that 22,000 felony convicts have had their voting rights restored by Governor Ralph Northam, which uh, Democrats hope will turn the state supremely blue. And an arson attack on a Planned Parenthood facility that was reported as a hate crime inspired by undercover videos was actually an incident of domestic violence. A senior executive of the organization has been forced to admit in a San Francisco courtroom. California Governor Gavin Newsom has signed a ban on small plastic bottles in hotels, so bring your own shampoo if you happen to be traveling in the area. Suspected assailant in El Paso Walmart to shooting has pled not guilty to attacking at least, um, well, attacking and then killing 22 people. 
And uh, a Canadian court has stripped a father of his rights, allowing teenagers to transition against his wishes. And Democratic House Committee Chairman Elijah Cummings, Elliot Engel and Adam Schiff sent a letter Thursday to Energy Secretary Rick Perry, alerting him to the subpoena that was to come, demanding documents relating to their impeachment inquiry of the president. And Ronan Farrell's book claims Hillary Clinton pressured Farrell to drop Harvey Weinstein, the investigation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back. Also, later this hour, we'll talk with Lathan Watts. He is the director of legal communications. We'll talk about comments made by Beto O'Rourke in the equality um, debate that took place over the weekend. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming later this hour, Lathan Watts, Director of Legal Communications at First Liberty Institute. We'll talk about uh, what Democratic presidential hopefuls had to say about religious uh, churches having tax-exempt status who oppose same-sex marriage. Well, the president's decision last week to withdraw American troops from northern Syria, thereby opening the region to an invasion by Turkey, was met with consternation among Trump's usually loyal evangelical supporters. The president attempted to assuage their fears that Syria's minority Christian community would suffer increased persecution as Turkey forces clash um, with uh, other actors in the region. I have made clear to Turkey that if they do not meet their commitments, including the protection of religious minorities, we will impose very swift, strong and severe economic sanctions. The president said at the values, the voter values summit, a gathering of social conservatives in Washington, D.C. More on that story in just a few moments. And among those uh, Democratic candidates making comment on the tax exempt status of churches who hold a traditional view on marriage, Elizabeth Warren ridiculed those who believe marriage should be between a man and a woman. Marco Rubio responding said it vividly captures the condescension of elites and their incessant ridicule of Americans with traditional values. It elites, um, it elicits glee among celebrities and blue check brigade. But for the millions of uh, sick of being disrespected, um, if uh, elicits support for fighting back, even in a crude or vulgar way. And a mother of a high school track star says we must stop boys from taking away girls' ability to compete. She says of her daughter, Alana, and a small but steadily growing number of courageous young women have stepped forward and publicly called upon the federal government to restore their fair playing field that they deserve. It's um, why more than 30,000 Americans have signed the hashtag fair play petition to keep all girls like Alana from ending up on the sidelines of their own sport. You can read more in the New York Post. And the telling moment from uh, the story in, the, in Newsweek that suggests that it's time to get rid of the Electoral College. The study authors propose that the complete elimination of the Electoral College is the only way to correct the imbalance, which favors 65 percent of future Republican presidential candidates. So much for leveling the playing field. We're nearly a week after the U.S. announced its decision to pull out troops from northern Syria to make way for a Kurdish, or rather a Turkish incursion. Kurdish forces in the country have reportedly agreed to a new deal with Damascus in a desperate bid to face off against Ankara's offensive. The New York Times reported that the uh, deal, which was announced on Sunday evening, would enable President Bashar al-Assad's forces to attempt to attempt to regain a foothold in the country's northeast. The Washington Post reported that the deal was reached after three days of negotiations between the Kurdish forces, Russian envoys, and Damascus. The latest development comes as at least nine people 
<clears throat> excuse me, including five civilians were killed on Sunday in Turkish airstrikes on the convoy uh, in the Syrian border town, according to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights and Syrian Kurdish officials. In an interview on Fox News Sunday, Secretary of Defense Mark Esper defended the president's decision to withdraw U.S. forces, saying that the U.S. is urging Turkish President uh, uh, Erdogan to cease the aggression. Good luck with that. Esper said that roughly 1,000 troops will be withdrawing from the northern part of the country. A U.S. official says that the forces will not be leaving the country altogether, but will be, but will be moving southward. Meanwhile, in a series of tweets, the president himself denounced getting involved in endless wars and talked up wide support in Washington for imposing new sanctions against Turkey. More updated information Coming up, well, President Trump targeted Hunter Biden on Sunday morning, implying that the son of former Vice President Joe Biden had disappeared hours after Hunter Biden's attorney announced his client is stepping down from the board of a Chinese company and vowed that he will not work with foreign companies if his father becomes president. Where's Hunter? He has totally disappeared, Trump tweeted. Trump and his own attorney, former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani, have accused Hunter Biden of improperly benefiting from business dealings in China and Ukraine while Joe Biden was vice president. And a caravan of roughly 2,000 migrants bound for the United States was halted by Mexican authorities over the weekend, only a few hours into their journey. Uh, According to officials, the caravan, which consisted of migrants from Africa, the Caribbean, Central America, left before dawn on Saturday uh, from a town in southern Mexico near the Guatemalan border. Reuters reported about 24 miles into their journey, federal police and National Guardsmen blocked their path. The abrupt halt of the caravan stood in stark contrast to last year when waves of U.S.-bound caravans, including one of at least 7,000 people, drew widespread media coverage while immigration officials on both sides of the border struggled to stem the flow. And the trade war between the U.S. and China continues to take a toll on the Chinese economy and threatens to tip the global economy into recession. China's trade with the, uh, with the United States fell by double digits again in September. Exports to the United States, China's biggest foreign market, fell 17.8 percent to $36.5 billion, a deterioration from August 16th percent decline. Uh, common um, customs data showed Monday imports of American goods uh, sank 20.6 percent from the year before to $10.6 billion, a slight improvement over August's 22 percent decline. And retired Army Master Sergeant Mark Allen died on Saturday, 10 years after he was shot while looking for a missing soldier, Army Sergeant Bo Bergdahl, in Afghanistan back in 2009. He was 46. Allen was unable to walk or speak since being shot in the head by a sniper in July of 2009 during his attempted search for Bergdahl, who walked off his base in Afghanistan and was imprisoned by the Taliban for five years. Bergdahl later pled guilty to desertion, misbehavior, and endangering the lives of fellow soldiers, including Allen, and was reduced in rank from sergeant to private, fined $1,000 per month over a 10-month period. Under the rule, the Hill reports, any immigrant who receives at least one designated public benefit, including Medicaid, food stamps, welfare, or public housing, uh, for more than 12 months within any three-year period will be considered a public charge and will be more likely to be denied a green card by immigration officials. Federal Judge George Daniels said the Trump administration likely exceeded its authority. A developing story will continue to follow. 
Kevin McLeanan, uh, Trump said Friday, has done an outstanding job as acting secretary of Homeland Security. We have worked well together with border crossings being way down. Kevin now, after many years in government, wants to spend more time with his family and go to the private sector. I will be announcing the new acting secretary this week. And as a corollary of lobbying rules, a deal that uh, Trump's legal team had reached with former South Carolina Republican Representative Trey Gowdy has fallen through. And Hunter Biden stepped down from his Chinese firms, vowing no foreign work if his father wins in 2020, raising questions why it wasn't dubious when his uh, father was vice president. Defense Secretary Mark Esper confirmed Sunday that President Trump has ordered a larger withdrawal of U.S. troops. And U.S. officials and representatives of the Afghan Taliban have begun discussing ways to revive a peace process after talks fell apart last month. PG&E Corp., They've, uh, their crews have restored power to more than 700,000 homes and businesses in California that had been subjected to a deliberate blackout. The Sacramento Bee reports, ironically, many Californians are discovering that solar panels don't work in blackouts. And pointing a finger, Gunland's um, uh, a sort of a finger gun has landed a bullied 12-year-old student in handcuffs. The student had been bullied, used the fingers to indicate the shape of a firearm, and the bullied 12-year-old is is in trouble. On this day in history in 1964, civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. is named winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. He would receive the award December 10, 1964. And on this day in 1912, Theodore Roosevelt, campaigning for the presidency, is shot in the chest in Milwaukee. Despite the wound, he goes ahead with a scheduled speech. And on this day in 1933, Nazi Germany announces it is withdrawing from the League of Nations. And on this day in 1968, the first successful live telecast from a manned U.S. spacecraft is transmitted from Apollo 7. On this day in 1987, a a 58-hour drama begins in Midland, Texas, as 18-month-old Jessica McClure slides 22 feet down a narrow, abandoned well as a private day or rather at a private daycare center. I remember that like it was yesterday. And finally, on this day in history, 2017, a truck bombing in Somalia's capital kills more than 500 people in one of the world's deadliest attacks in years. Officials blame the attack on the extremist group Al-Shabaab and says it was meant to target Mogadishu's international airport, but the bomb detonated in a crowded street after soldiers opened fire. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up uh, later this hour, we'll talk with Lathan Watts, Director of Legal Communications for First Liberty Institute on presidential hopefuls' uh, view on churches that hold a traditional and biblical view on marriage. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 33 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, a lot has happened over the last week and a half as the president has vacillated between removing troops, letting them stay in the area, And sanctioning Turkey, but President uh, Trump announced this afternoon that he will soon issue an executive order imposing sanctions against Turkey for its destabilizing offensive in Syria. Amid a bipartisan outcry over the president's troop pullback earlier this year that endangered U.S.-aligned Kurdish forces. Well, in a statement that was posted on Twitter, the president announced that steel tariffs would be increased back up to 50 percent and the U.S. will immediately stop negotiations with respect to the $1 billion, $100 billion trade deal with Turkey. Well, the order would enable powerful additional sanctions against those who may be involved in serious human rights abuses, obstructing a ceasefire, preventing displaced persons 
citizens from returning home, forcibly repatriation refugees, or threatening the peace, security, or stability of Syria, the president wrote. Current and former Turkish officials, as well as anyone contributed to Turkey's destabilizing action in northeast Syria, might be targeted, the president went on to say. Well, U.S. troops may remain in northwest Syria, rather northeast Syria, um, even though the uh, planned withdrawal was undertaken, the president said they'll be redeployed in the region to monitor the situation. <clears throat> Please excuse me and prevent a repeat of 2014 when ISIS made major territorial gains. In separate tweets, the president said he would much rather focus on our southern border than the conflict in Syria and suggested we can't protect the border of Syria when we can't even protect our own. The White House's announcement came as graphic images of violence directed at Kurds circulated on social media. Turkey had justified its ongoing invasion in northeast Syria to the United Nations by saying it's exercising its right to self-defense under the U.N. Charter, according to a letter circulated earlier uh, this week, or I should say Monday. Ankara said the military offensive was undertaken to counter an imminent terrorist threat and to ensure the security of its borders from Syrian Kurdish militias, whom it calls terrorists, and the Islamic State extremist groups. Well, since 2014, the Kurds have fought alongside American forces in defeating ISIS in Syria. But the U.S. president ordered American troops in northern Syria to step aside last week, a move decried at home and abroad as a betrayal of an ally. It's rather interesting that some who are now decrying that move called for it to have been done earlier, but that's the way politics rolls, I suppose. The U.S. withdrawal cleared the way for Turkey's cross-border attack on Kurdish-held areas in Syria, which is now in its sixth day and has led to quickly shifting alliances. The military action by Ankara set up a potential clash between Turkish and Syrian government troops, as the Kurds uh, have now turned to Damascus for support. It also raises the specter of a resurgence of ISIS, since the Kurds will focus their attention on the Turkish advance. Turkey's position is that the main Kurdish group in Syria is linked to an outlawed Kurdish group in Turkey, the Kurdistan Workers' Party, known as the PKK. That group has waged a 35-year conflict against the Turkish state that's left tens of thousands of people dead there. Well, Turkey's U.N. ambassador said in a letter to the uh, Security Council dated back in uh, on the 9th of October that its counterterrorism operation will be proportionate, measured, and responsible. Well, the operation will target only terrorists and their hideous shelters, emplacements, weapons, vehicles and equipment, he said. All precautions are taken to avoid collateral damage to the civilian population, he said. But U.N. uh, Security uh, or rather Secretary General Antonio Guterres said on Monday that at least 160,000 civilians have been newly displaced, that military action has already reportedly resulted in many civilian casualties. So the uh, unfolding drama continues. The United States position uh, seems to be shifting as well. Meanwhile, the Pentagon was accelerating plans to get all American troops out of Syria in the coming days and weeks. Two U.S. officials had said um, earlier, it's not clear right now when all the roughly 1,000 U.S. troops in Syria will be pulling out of the country. A small garrison in southern Syria near Jordan with uh, over 100 troops could remain to guard a supply line used by Iranian-backed forces to move weapons between Tehran and Beirut, as well as Damascus, the officials added. But Defense Secretary Esper told Chris Wallace uh, in an interview that Trump had ordered a deliberate withdrawal from northern Syria. It was uh, not clear if that meant leaving the country altogether. 
together. As per Hinta, the retreat from Syria could take longer because of the larger number of U.S. armored vehicles and heavy weapons currently on the ground in Syria. Military hardware he does not want to see fall into enemy hands. We want to make sure, he said, that we don't leave equipment behind, so I'm not preparing to pull a timeline on it. Uh, speaking to CBS Face the Nation. Further um, evidence, the relationship with NATO ally Turkey is deteriorating. It's uh, uh, The Pentagon canceled a planned open skies reconnaissance flight over Russia this week with the Turkish military. The flight aboard a Turkish plane with U.S. military observers on board is part of a longstanding arms control agreement between NATO and Russia. The Pentagon has not immediately returned a request for comment on the canceled flight. But critics say the administration has betrayed the Syrian Kurds, the main U.S. ally against ISIS in that region. What we're seeing on the ground is absolutely sickening. It's uh, absolutely shameful that President Trump allowed Turkey to begin killing the Syrian Kurds, who are our allies in the fight against ISIS. That's a quote from Maryland Democrat Senator Chris Van Hollen speaking on Fox News Sunday. Esper defended the decision to retreat on Fox News Sunday as well, saying Trump's defense secretary said there was nothing the U.S. could do to stop Turkey's invasion. They were fully committed to doing this regardless of what we did. We thought it was prudent. It was uh, my recommendation. I know the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff agreed as well. We should not put U.S. forces in between a Turkish advance, Esper said. We're talking less than 50, more like uh, two dozen. There is no way they could stop 15,000 Turks from proceeding southward. Now, an explanation like that helps to at least understand some of the reasoning behind it. And it would have been helpful for the general public to know that the Joint Chiefs of Staff apparently agreed, as did the defense secretary. Asked if Turkey had behaved like a NATO ally, Esper was candid. The arc of their behavior over the past several years has been terrible. I mean, they are spinning out of the Western orbit, if you will. The situation in Syria following Turkey's invasion gets worse by the hour, he went on to add. Mm. Well, as I mentioned, the embattled Kurds have cut a deal with um, Assad, something they would not otherwise have done as the U.S. is pulling another 1,000 troops from Syria. Reports coming from overnight Sunday indicate the Syrian Kurdish leaders are ceding their territory to Bashar al-Assad's regime, effectively surrendering their dream of autonomy in the face of Turkey's military onslaught. The defense secretary uh, confirmed that U.S. was withdrawing 1,000 troops from the northern part of the country to prevent them from being caught between the two opposing forces. Meanwhile, a uh, Syriac Christian and his wife have died, while an additional Syriac Christian civilian was killed. Ten civilians were injured in the attack. People were so scared, says one observer. They were telling me they are bombing us right now. The president of the Syriac National Council of Syria told NPR, we think this is a message uh, to the Kurds and Christians. They are uh, there to leave so Turkey can move refugees there. We think it's a form of ethnic cleansing. The Turkish operation focused initially on a 60-mile stretch of land between the two Arab-majority cities, uh, a sparsely populated area known as Syria's breadbasket, which advocates for um, Christians, the IDC and other religious minorities in the Middle East, said that this area um, has large concentrations of Christians and perhaps um, the only remaining in the air, in the country. In total, seven civilians uh, were killed as of um, the weekend, including two children. A retaliatory Kurdish mortar fire into Turkey killed six people in several towns. Turkish President Erdogan stated 109 Kurdish fighters were killed. Video footage shows tens of thousands of civilians fleeing the area, shouting against both Erdogan and U.S. President Trump. On Monday, roughly 50 to 100 American troops evacuated their observation posts. 
Uh, by Wednesday, the Turkish incursions had begun, including airstrikes with U.S. purchased F-16s. The Kurdish-led Syrian Defense Forces had previously dismantled their heavy artillery positions when the U.S. agreed with Turkey to set up a buffer zone along the border. U.S. military officials told The Washington Post that Turkey mostly targeted Kurdish military facilities, likely destroying U.S.-supplied weaponry, but uh, other airstrikes hit populated areas as expected. Well, earlier this week, political observer David Harsinyi questioned the Ukraine phone call whistleblower's motives, asking, what if the whistleblower had once worked for Biden? That would be wild, he went on to speculate. Well, it now appears things are about to get wild. On Thursday, the Washington Examiner reported that Joe Biden worked with the whistleblower when he was vice president, digging into intelligence community inspector general Michael Atkinson's comments that the whistleblower had a professional tie to a 2020 Democrat candidate and that the whistleblower had expressed some uh, indicia of an arguable political bias in favor of a rival political candidate. The examiner concluded that the candidate in question is Biden. From everything we know about the whistleblower and his work in the executive branch then, there is absolutely no doubt he would have been uh, working with Biden when he was vice president, a former CIA officer told the examiner. Well, this person yet unknown, after working with Biden, may feel defensive toward him because he feels Biden is being falsely attacked. Maybe he is even talking to Biden's staff. Maybe it is innocent. Maybe not. He went on to speculate. Again, David Harsinyi. From the beginning, from the very beginning of whistleblower complaint, uh, this complaint, it reeked the stench of a partisan hit job, he says, and that stench hasn't dissipated. It's only gotten stronger no matter how vigorously the left media seeks to waft it away. Early on, we raised the question of who this whistle Whistleblower was, and while concerns raised over protecting whistleblowers was valid, when the issue in question is a clear violation of law, those protections shouldn't be used to cover, be used as cover for initiating a clear politically motivated hit job. That's when the so-called whistleblower is anything but a real whistleblower. The complaint was not corroborated by the phone call in question. It relied on secondhand information that would not have triggered an urgent concern designated designation rather but for a mysterious form change after its original submittal and it was submitted by a political by, politically biased individual who communicated with representative Adam Schiff prior to the uh, lodging complaint, which Schiff subsequently lied about. Now we're learning this individual had worked with Biden. President Trump is correct when he asserts this is no whistleblower. We hope the member of this uh, orchestrated charade is unmasked. Again, David Harsinyi looking at what we know bit by bit regarding the whistleblower and this latest complaint. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Lathan Watts, Director of Legal Communications for First Liberty Institute, on presidential hopefuls' uh, call to end tax-exempt status for churches who hold a traditional and biblical view on marriage. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, LGBTQ plus activists gathered last week for CNN's Equality Town Hall with the Democratic presidential candidates. Religious freedom was the second most popular whipping post. The candidates talked about the concept uh, with palpable uh, derision. Among them was Democratic presidential hopeful Beto O'Rourke, although not exclusively. But he called for an end to the tax-exempt status for any church opposing same-sex marriage. 
Well, First Liberty has um, some experience with a past case defending pastors against the Internal Revenue Service and these kinds of assaults on the notion of religious freedom. And joining us to talk about this is uh, Lathan Watts. He's the director of legal communications for Liberty Institute on the Democratic presidential hopefuls call uh, to end tax exempt status for any church holding a traditional view on marriage. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I don't think anyone was surprised by what was said by Beto O'Rourke, by uh, others who also commented um, uh, in a way that would undermine religious liberty. Your take on this equality uh, town hall? Well, um, as we say in in Texas, this is not our first rodeo uh, when it comes to this issue. Um, We um, defended uh, several pastors and churches uh, all the way back in 2009 when they got a nasty gram from the IRS um, for supporting then Texas Governor Rick Perry and his stance on uh, marriage. And uh, we were able to successfully resolve that for those pastors and those churches. And if um, Beto O'Rourke or any president, for that matter, um, attempted to do this, we would be you know, ready, willing, and able to defend churches and pastors across the country uh, again and are uh, confident that we would win again. Is this a question that uh, you see being asked over and over again and a challenge coming to the court? Or is there a a point at which this will ultimately be resolved because we uh, are continuing to see these kinds of challenges to the tax exempt status of churches and and more broadly, uh, the freedom uh, to exercise one's religion? Um, Hard to say if there's going to be more of this sort of thing. Thankfully, you know, the, the candidate that brought it up, Bill uh, Lewick, is um, you know, nowhere near uh, the top of the polls in the, in the Democratic presidential field. I think his best chance of seeing the inside of the White House is probably to take out of tour. Um, but it is an indication of where uh, some uh, would like to go. And uh, But it is a clear violation of the First Amendment, and uh, we uh, would be uh, ready to defend that in court. And we're confident that we would win. Um, you know, this um, it's not just unconstitutional, it's just bad policy. Uh, there's a, a, a recent study about uh, the contribution to the U.S. economy of people of faith and religious organizations, and, and it's, it's in the trillions of dollars. It's more than the top you know, tech companies in America combined. So this is a bad idea on a lot of fronts. Um, I don't think it has uh, much traction. Um, I do think that we would be successful in uh, stopping it in court, uh, as we have before. And I think it's it's worth uh, stopping for a moment on what you just said, the study that you cited uh, that indicates that religion contributes an estimated $1.2 trillion to the U.S. economy anime, uh, annually. And that's more than Google. It's more than Amazon, more than Apple and Microsoft combined. combined. That's um, significant, and it's having a significant impact on the culture. <laughs> That's exactly right, and not just what uh, religion and religious people contribute to the economy, but also the savings that religious, um, religiously affiliated uh, nonprofits and other uh, ministries, you know, the services that they provide for uh, people in need. Uh, you know, that's one thing that's common across you know most, if not all, faiths is caring for people who are in need. And when churches and ministries and nonprofits do that, their efforts are. Uh, ease the, the the burden on the taxpayer uh, from federal government programs, state government programs that are designed to you know, alleviate those same things. So this is um, you know, really just uh, an acknowledgement of the positive role of that religion can play in a free and civil society, and it should be encouraged, uh, not you know, threatened by presidential candidates or uh, or federal government agencies like the IRS. It's not uncommon, <clears throat> excuse me, for 
political candidates when standing before in a town hall, a special interest group to, to pander to that group. Do you believe there's a real threat to religious liberty coming from these presidential hopefuls? I mean, obviously, only one of them is going to be the nominee or in general that there is a real threat to our constitutional freedom, the guarantee of religious liberty. Well, the threat is very real. Um, you know, whether the, uh, I don't think that, that the threat will ultimately come from Beto O'Rourke, but I don't think he's going to be successful. But the threat to religious liberty is absolutely and we, we deal with it on a daily basis uh, at org in cases all across the country. Um, so, you know, make no doubt about it, there is a serious threat to religious liberty. Um, you know, things like the Equality Act and other uh, state government actions like uh, in Oregon, our, our clients, Anna Melissa Klein, you know, who lost their business uh, because the state of Oregon uh, bankrupted them for refilling a, a couple of different papers. Um, there is absolutely a threat to religious liberty in this country, and that's what our firm exists uh, to, to fight against. It's the only kind of case that, that we handle, and um, thanks to uh, you know, supporters, uh, we were able to do that and never charge our clients for the representation to do so. Well, it is incredible work that you do, and I so appreciate that you're available and standing by uh, to champion um, the constitutional right that we all have but is uh, severely challenged by those who don't perhaps appreciate the value that it brings to the broader culture, even to those who are not religiously affiliated, um, and the value of this freedom that we enjoy. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I apologize for my throat. I'm struggling a little bit today, but I appreciate your joining us today. No, thank you so much for having me. And if anybody is interested uh, in learning more about our work, then just go to firstliberty.org. Or if they have um, a legal question about their First Amendment rights, there's a tab at the top of there that says get legal help. It's a very simple form you can fill out. One of our team will be in touch with you. Uh, Firstliberty.org. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Again, Lathan Watts is the director of Legal Communications for First Liberty Institute on uh, Beto O'Rourke's uh, comment. Uh, essentially, I think Beto O'Rourke would have said anything that might have garnered a bit of applause. But nonetheless, when these kinds of brazen comments are made in the context of a presidential context, they need to be taken seriously and uh, addressed and confronted head on. I appreciate that First Liberty is uh, doing just that. Well, again, I apologize for my uh, my voice today. I was actually doing better Earlier in the day, and I have a very busy vocal week coming up. Uh, tomorrow is our pastor's appreciation breakfast, and I'm uh, going to be joined by a couple of friends. We're going to be presenting the music tomorrow morning, early in the morning, scratchy throat. It's a formula for disaster. If you think of it, would you say a prayer? I'm going to do everything I can to strengthen my voice overnight. Then I have a, a three-hour rehearsal on Friday for a worship event that's coming up in a few weeks, and I have a recording session for the Singing Christmas Tree on Saturday morning, the worst time to try to sing well is in the morning, and I've got a recording session Saturday morning. So it's going to be a, a bit of a tough week, but I'll try not to be so offensive with the quality of my voice or the absence of quality in my voice, uh, and we'll try to nurse it back to uh, to health. Um, to let you know what's coming up in the second hour of the program, if you can, if you can put up with it, I will. Uh, we're going to talk with uh, Shandron Thomas. He is the author of Discover Joy in Work, Transforming Your Occupation into Your Vocation. It's actually really well done. There are lots of examples. You might assume that because this um, is a very successful man uh, and the kind of work that he does is fulfilling. It's something he trained for. He's, he's got an education for that. It's only for that kind of work. But regardless of what your hands are set to do, this is a book that will help you discover joy in that work and 
the value of work in general. So that's coming up in the five o'clock hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, news and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back six minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency and Zero Res. Coming up later this hour, we'll talk with Shundron Thomas. He is the author of Discover Joy in Work, Transforming Your Occupation into Your Vocation. Very practically well-written book to help you uh, get the most out of what your hands are set to do. Well, the U.S. and China have reached a partial trade pause. Not exactly an agreement, but it's a pause. Well, the president speaking at the White House said, we've come to a very substantial phase one deal. So this is phase one, adding it uh, will take three to five weeks to get written. The deal includes intellectual property, financial services and 40 to 50 billion dollars related to agricultural product. It's unclear what the U.S. will give up in return and a comprehensive trade deal will uh, have two or three phases. The U.S. will not be raising tariffs on the Chinese next week to the 30 percent level as part of that agreement. U.S. stocks spiked to the uh, highs of the session with the Dow Jones Industrial Average rising 500 points, well, nearly, before pulling back slightly at the close. The move signals the third major trade deal President Trump has sealed, or at least major trade pause. The president signaled this morning that talks were uh, heading in the right direction after a week of trading barbs with uh, with Chinese China, uh, good things are happening in China trade talk meeting. Warmer feelings than in recent past, more like the old days. He tweeted. Well, we'll continue to follow that developing story. Well, the Democratic debate resumes on Tuesday, featuring a surging Elizabeth Warren and a recuperating Bernie Sanders. With Elizabeth Warren challenging Joe Biden for the frontrunner label, the backdrop on Tuesday night's Democratic presidential debate is significantly different from prior, prior matchups. Uh, what's more, Bernie Sanders is facing questions about his ability to go the distance as he recovers from a heart attack this month. And the clash in Ohio will be the first debate since House Democrats launched their official impeachment inquiry into President Donald Trump. In addition, two long-shot candidates, Hawaii Representative Tulsi Gabbard and hedge fund billionaire Tom Steyer, are slated to get spots on the debate stage after failing to qualify for last month's clash. That's raised the total number of invited candidates or contenders from 10 to a dozen. The debate, uh, run by AT&T, uh, CNN, and the New York Times, is due to start at 8 p.m. Eastern time. Of course, that's 5 o'clock p.m. our time on Tuesday. It will be at uh, Oberbein University in Westerville, uh, northeastern uh, suburb of Columbus, Ohio. Warren, the progressive Massachusetts senator, may be seeking to reassure her critics during the debate. Um, a professor of political communication at the University of Missouri observes. McKinney says Warren's message may um, resonate with uh, with more voters uh, because of her primary contender's health concerns. Uh, you can commit to me. I am a safe candidate. I will be strong candidate. Let's rethink your notions of the safe candidate, is what uh, they speculate she might be trying to accomplish during this uh, event. And while Warren edged past Biden in a widely uh, followed average of polls last week, some centrist Democrats continue to worry about her policy plans that target Wall Street and other sectors. Party fundraisers think Warren can win the presidency, and they know she represents a real threat to their companies and their tax rates. A chief U.S. policy strategist in investments in a recent note points out, 
Um, Warren will have to be careful in terms of going directly after Biden, given how Democrats felt about attacks on him in prior debates by California Senator Kamala Harris and Julian Castro, the former Housing and Urban Development Secretary. The Massachusetts lawmaker also will have to uh, take care in how she interacts with Sanders as she wants to avoid looking like she's aiming to kick him when he's down, McKinney. Uh, pointed out. For Biden, one key will be to demonstrate to voters that he's vigorously able to take on Donald Trump and also stand up for himself, his family. Uh, Republicans have emphasized the former vice president's link to the impeachment effort, which was announced on the 24th of last month and is centered on how Trump asked his Ukrainian counterpart to investigate Biden and his son. Biden would argue there's nothing there, there. Others suggest, oh, yes, there is. Meanwhile, the 78-year-old Sanders, he faces a crucial moment following his uh, heart attack on the 1st of October. If uh, he's able to turn in a performance that shows uh, that he hasn't missed a beat, so to speak, uh, then he's the same old Bernie, aggressive, passionate, uh, but maybe a little less angry. Then that will uh, go far to allay any questions and fears that maybe he doesn't have what it takes to run the course. Um, the Vermont senator made an effort on Monday to act true to form as his campaign unveiled a plan to uh, that promises to put an end to the corporate greed ruining our country, in quotes. His proposal calls for giving workers 20 percent of their company's shares and 45 percent of their uh, firm's board seats. And it also would ban large scale stock buybacks, return the federal corporate tax rate to 35 percent from 21 percent and require companies to give back stock. Uh, to workers who lose their job due to outsourcing or automation. Well, the dozen Democrats who have qualified for Tuesday's debate are Biden, Warren, Sanders, Harris, Castro, Gabbard, and Steyer, as well as South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg, entrepreneur Andrew Yang, former Representative Beto O'Rourke, Senator Cory Booker, and Senator Amy Klobuchar. Uh, In a real clear politics um, moving average of polls on Monday, Biden had regained frontrunner status, scoring 27.8 percent support versus Warren's 26 percent. Sanders um, drew 15.2 percent support, topping uh, Buttigieg at 5 percent, Harris at 4.5, Yang at 2.7. All other Democratic candidates hoping to challenge Trump in the um, election in November of 2020 were below 2 percent. Ahead of the September 12th debate, uh, Biden was drawing support from 27 percent versus 17 percent, each from Warren and Sanders. And while Gabbard and Steyer have made the cut for the debate, each faces a pretty tricky path, according to uh, experts. Gabbard, who took part in June and July primary debates, threatened to boycott this debate tomorrow night, saying the Democratic National Committee and media are trying to rig the 2020 primary, but then tweeted Monday that she would be there. Gabbard may be anticipating that she won't qualify for next month's debate. University of Missouri professor um, points out in his observations, Mr. McKinney and Steyer, who is appearing in a 2020 debate for the first time, likely holds minimal appeal for many Democratic voters who don't want to see another wealthy businessman with no political experience move into the White House. Uh, To qualify for the fifth primary debate in November, candidates will need to have at least 165,000 unique donors, as well as hit 3 percent support in at least four national or early state polls or 5 percent in two early state polls. That's up from the previously required 130,000 donors and 2 percent support. Again, that debate taking place uh, tomorrow, 5 o'clock. Well, I'm not going to have time to get into this, but as um, street battles between protesters and police continue to escalate in Hong Kong, China's authoritarian leader warned on Sunday any further attempt to divide the country will literally be crushed. Now, when the uh, president of the 
People's Republic of China makes such a statement, it should be taken seriously. Chinese President Xi Jinping made the comments during a visit to Nepal, where he became the first Chinese president in more than two decades to visit the country. Anyone attempting to split China in any part of the country will end in crushed bodies and shattered bones, he told Nepalese Prime Minister K.P. Sharma Oli. China's state broadcaster reported, and any external forces backing such attempts dividing China will be deemed by the Chinese people as pipe dreaming. Apparently no broken bodies and shattered bones, but pipe dreaming. Xi made the explicit comments at a meeting where the two signaled, uh, or rather signed, more than 20 agreements, including one commissioning a feasibility study of a China-Nepal cross-border railway project. The railway construction is being Uh, considered under an ambitious project that has a component of China's signature Belt and Road Initiative. The two countries also signed agreements um, in areas of connectivity, security, border management, trade, tourism, and education. And an Iranian oil tanker cruising 60 miles off the coast of Saudi Arabia was rocked by a pair of missiles on Friday, briefly causing an oil leak and more broadly threatening to further inflame fraught regional tensions between the two heavyweight Muslim nations. Iranian state television reported the explosions um, damaged two storerooms aboard an oil tanker, which is owned by the National Iranian Oil Company and caused an oil leak in the Red Sea near the Saudi port city of Jeddah. The leak was later plugged. Uh, This latest incident, if confirmed to be an act of aggression, is highly likely to be part of a wider narrative of deteriorating relations between Saudi and the U.S. and Iran, according to an assessment provided by the Associated Press by private maritime security firm Dryad Maritime. It uh, is likely that the region, having been stable for the last month, will face another period of increasing maritime threats as the Iranian and Saudi, uh, Saudi geopolitical standoff continues. Mm. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Shandron Thomas. He's the author of Discover Joy in Work, Transforming Your Occupation into Your Vocation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the truth is many of us struggle to find a sense of purpose or fulfillment in what we do. And the question is, is it possible for us to truly flourish at work or do we just have jobs? Well, business executive Shandrong Thomas reveals how work is intended to produce a lasting value and should be meaningful and productive. A healthy attitude toward work and the workplace requires intentionality and effort. He addresses issues of work ethics, um, character formation, and work-life synergy to find better harmony between what we do and who we are. Through empirical research and real-life stories, he reveals fundamental truths and easy-to-remember concepts for joy at work, regardless of your occupation, your age, or career stage. And that may seem like a tall order, but we're going to talk about that in uh, in just a moment. Once again, my guest this afternoon is Shandron Thomas. He is president of a trillion-dollar global investment management business and is a management group member of a leading financial services company. He previously advised institutional equity investors as a vice president of Goldman Sachs and held positions in sales, trading, and research in the fixed income division of Morgan Stanley. He is an engaged civic leader serving as a trustee for Wheaton College and as board of directors of the Museum of Science and Industry. He also serves as board governor for the Investment Company Institute. Uh, Mr. Thomas is a motivational speaker, lecturer, speaking nationally on a variety of issues.
Springs. He also serves as an elder and board member of his local church. He's happily married and has two sons. Joins us today to talk about his uh, new book, Discovery, or rather Discover Joy in Work, Transforming Your Occupation into Your Vocation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Georgine, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, after reading that long bio, I'm, I'm surprised that you have time <laughs> to talk with us, but I'm grateful that you do. Oh, it's uh, always have time for things that are important. In the introduction, you begin by referencing an article that was published by Gallup in which they point out that the world has an employee engagement crisis with serious and potentially lasting repercussions for the global economy. Let's talk about what employee engagement is and are we facing a crisis? So I think when you start with engagement, uh, and so a lot of companies look at this statistic, and basically what we're saying when we talk about engaged employees, it means engaged employees are, A, enthused about uh, their work and their workplace, and enthused employees will do things like, for example, recommend their employer as a a preferred place of employment to others. Uh, They also are are willing to give uh, what I would call an outsized or an exceptional effort to their workplace, right? And so if you were thinking of having any sort of uh, workplace, you would want those types of employees. Uh, the issue that you have, though, is when you look at these statistics globally, it's very sobering. Uh, they say approximately about 13% of all employees globally would be described as engaged employees. And so simply put, the vast majority of employees that show up to work every day don't really enjoy or feel fulfilled in their workplace or their work environment. Is that the nature of the work that we do? It's less meaningful than perhaps previous generations? Or is it something that we bring to our work or fail to bring to our work that explains that lack of engagement? Well, I think there's always two sides to the coin. So if you think about it, there, there certainly are situations where people are in very challenged work situations, right? Um, they could be dealing with issues of discrimination, sexism. Uh, you, you, you can name the various things. But the reality is these are very exceptional situations. And so in the vast number of instances, you have two things working together. From the standpoint of the employer, are we creating an environment where people can flourish? But most importantly, I believe it's the perspective and the mindset uh, of the employee, the worker themselves, uh, that really affects this. Henry Allen has a great uh, quote in, in, in one of his books. He says, our life is not just about what we experience, so to speak. But it's about what we think and feel about what we experience. And I think that's very true or apropos as it pertains to how people experience uh, their work and their work experience. Now, words are very important, excuse me, in your book. And one of the distinctions that you make very clearly is the distinction between the word work, the concept of work and a job. Can you make that? Can you explain that to us and why it's important that as we're considering transforming our occupation into a vocation, it's important to define our terms. Yeah. And, and the reason it's important, and I think this is very interesting, because if you just look at the etymology of words, it's very telling. So mm-hmm. when you think about a job, think about that in the context of a duty or an assignment. The very etymology of uh, the word uh, refers to uh, work we do for a wage or, or compensation, right? Uh, it refers to a piece or component of work. Now, if you think of the word work uh, in and of itself, it really referred to something more like a skilled trade. Uh, You think of work as being uh, something uh, not only that takes uh, great skill, but it it, it involves the whole self. And so you think of work also in its etymology, that very word, is being part of, say, a, a greater undertaking, right? And so if you looked at the terms, you might associate the word job, for example, 
uh, more closely with what we might refer to as occupation, whereas you might associate the word work uh, with the, a word that we use called vocation. So think about that being something more like your life's work or your calling. Now, you uh, point out that uh, your vocation is a calling. Uh, and for some of our listeners, that would seem very clear and obvious because they're doing the kind of work that uh, is, is satisfying, it's fulfilling, and they're doing work that's meaningful. But for those who perhaps have work that uh, means standing behind a counter in a, f- a fast food restaurant or the kind of work that probably aligns better with the definition of job, is it possible to find joy in that kind of work? And so, and I think this is one of the most important things about the book, because I think the, what we're often um, led to uh, believe is that one can only find joy or fulfillment in some particular unique thing uh, that presumably, uh, before we were born, we were selected to do, right? But I think in reality, um, first of all, there is dignity in all work. There is also the ability of all work to help develop in us work ethic, and ultimately for us to find joy. So I'll give one example. Um, I think of the various kinds of work that I have, and people look at what I do today, but I said my work experience started out when I was 11, going on 12 years old, and I began to earn money or help around the house by cutting grass or shoveling snow or different things like that. And there was not only the development of certain character traits, but there was actually a, a, a sense of meaning or fulfillment that came from being able to contribute to what my family was trying to achieve or to help the greater good. So that's one example of ways that we can be fulfilled or finding meaning in our work. Uh, I give the simple example in the book. I'm one of those people that likes hands-on work. Uh, so if I'm around the house, I mean, something like cleaning or power washing my deck, mowing my lawn, believe it or not, uh, some of those times I actually am able to sort of lose myself in my work, uh, be be at one with myself, Um, sometimes uh, just that activity. And so, again, this thought that we can't find fulfillment uh, in things that aren't part of some quote-unquote special calling, I think is a misperception about the value of work. I so appreciate that, and I appreciate your mentioning your work history because it's really quite interesting. People might assume because of the lofty positions that you now hold that you can't relate to the kind of work that many of us who are average find ourselves doing, and yet it's possible to discover joy in the work that we have been uh, given to do. Um, in your first, uh, the first part of the book, you really focus on our attitude, and that has such a significant impact on our whole approach to working. In fact, I was thinking about there's a woman who is older than the average employee in a McDonald's. I drive up to the window, and I'm always excited when she's there because of her attitude. Um, she has a smile on her face. She greets you warmly. She asks you how you do, you're doing in a way that would that brings dignity to her work. And I'm always glad when I see her, when I approach the McDonald's, I hope that she's working. Uh, she is the, um, I think, an illustration of what you're talking about, having an attitude uh, that brings value to your work. Yes. You know, I think many of us, when we look at experiences in our lives, and one of the things that I do in the, the book is I, I give real life examples, either, either people that I have interacted with in my life or people in different professions. Uh, there's a police officer or school teacher, different people I interview, uh, and it's amazing to see how the mindset or the attitude uh, affects not only how they experience their work, but just as importantly, how they experience their life. Uh, I give one anecdote in the book, similar to what you just described, of a wonderful woman who was a security guard um, at the uh, building that I worked with years ago when I worked for Goldman Sachs. And I'll never forget, she always had that just amazing disposition 
always greeted uh, people with a smile. And she would always say, you know, God bless you whenever I would come into the building. And I remember her having that same disposition even the day after uh, when I was coming to work after the attacks of 9-11. And the anecdote in the book, which is a true anecdote, I I asked her about the source of this. And she just began to express how much gratitude that she had for her just ability to do work mm-hmm. and how she had done different types of work over the course of her life. But she was really grateful for what she experienced, the people that she interacted with, what she learned in that job. And, and that example for me many years ago, uh, it just really always sat with me in terms of what kind of attitude we should have towards our work. Mm. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. One of the things I wanted to mention was that in the first part of the book, there's a reference to Genesis 2.15 and uh, just focusing on the uh, the fact that we are designed to work and whatever that work happens to be when we approach it with the right attitude, um, we are honoring Uh, the very one who designed us. We'll continue our conversation in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Shundron Thomas, who is the author of Discover Joy in Work, the transforming, or rather transforming your occupation into your vocation. It really is a challenge to think about the work of our hands, the value that it has, because uh, work is honorable, and how we should approach it in a way that uh, that brings uh, perhaps greater satisfaction because we value the work that we do. In this section on the, in the workplace, you uh, write about our attitude, our approach, and our aptitude, as well as um, the achievement that is the result of all of that. Can you talk a bit about our approach and aptitude? Because that can elevate the work that we're doing in ways that uh, don't necessarily reflect a change in what we're actually doing, but a change in our approach. You're referring to, in the, in the first segment of the book, I, I introduced uh, what I call the four A's. We talked about the first attitude, uh, but those second two uh, that you refer to are approach and aptitude. Mm-hmm. Now, with respect to approach, it's just uh, realizing that given our unique sort of circumstances, wherever we work, uh, that we have to think about the approach that we take, not only towards actually our work product, what, whatever we're contributing, but also the approach that we take to, to those that we work with. Uh, because we virtually all work in community. And I, I, I give examples of simple disciplines such as prioritization. Many people come to the workplace and their day just happens to them. And so the proverbial checklist that we have when we work in, walk into our workplace almost never gets fully completed. But we actually get more meaning or fulfillment out of our work when we're able to accomplish those things that are most important. So having the discipline to prioritize and reprioritize and make sure you're completing uh, the most important things. Partnerships. Here's a simple thing. It is uh, research shows that if an individual has at least just one person in the workplace that they view as a personal friend, it dramatically changes their experience in the workplace. And so that also says that the vast majority of people at work don't have even one person that they look at uh, where they've developed a relationship where they're a close personal friend. So if we can partner, we talk about that, with others in the workplace, it changes the nature of our experience. When you talk about aptitude, I would just simply say um, skills make a difference. And so all of us enjoy doing work that we're really good at, and the opposite is true. So the importance of actually developing professionally and personally uh, to to really moving our focus to things that we're highly skilled at within the context of whatever our job is is critically important for us to feel uh, that we're actually enjoying our work. In the second part of your book, you write about uh, work ethic. And when you think about work ethic, you often think about, do I manage the uh, the company's uh, 
things well? Am I managing my time well? And so on. But you really focus on some things that we find uh, mentioned in Scripture, the love of money, the praise of people, the pride of life. Talk about a work ethic and how uh, addressing these three areas can help us find the joy that uh, the title of your book suggests we can enjoy in our work. Well, the first thing, and, and I'm really glad that you brought out this, this thought of work ethic, because fundamentally, that means that we believe that work in and of itself has value. It has the ability to develop character to, in us. And so it means that work has value beyond what I would call the typical external motivators that we all look to. Now, in that segment of the book, I have what I refer to that you've referenced as the three rewards. Uh, number one is remuneration, getting paid for the work that we do. Uh, two is recognition, right? People want to be recognized or, or praised for what they do. And the third one is respect, right? Now, none of those things inherently are bad, but the, the fundamental issue is when your external motivation is greater than your internal drive or motivation, then you're out of balance. And so to really have come from a place where we recognize those things have their relevance, but we keep them in the right context, and our self-motivation, our desire to grow and build our character, our desire to be a good uh, employee, our desire to be a good partner in the workplace, uh, our desire to do work that is missional and has lasting value. If those things are greater than what I call those external motivators, you find that those individuals uh, find not only a deep fulfillment, uh, but joy in their work. That is so excellent. In the third part of your book, and there are um, are three parts uh, in the book, uh, you focus on your work life, what uh, work reveals about your purpose and the requirement of effort. Talk a little bit about work life, because it does consume so much of so many of our uh, our, our days, uh, that it's important to put it in a proper context so that we do enjoy the work that, uh, that we have? Well, uh, the first thing um, that I, I try to uh, address is there's this term that we hear a lot, a lot work-life balance. Uh, and while I get the spirit of what people are suggesting, I think the reality is uh, there's no perfect balance that we, we find, so to speak, if you were trying to weigh those skills. Uh, think about the demands of just of everyday life. Uh, you know, I was thinking about in preparation for this, I think about not only what you do in your work in the marketplace, but what you do in the church and so many different communities. I'm sure that it's always a battle to, quote unquote, to find some proverbial sense of balance. And so the real thing that I think we seek to find is what I describe as work-life synergy, that your work is integrated with your life. And so your work ultimately becomes an expression of the mission of your life. And when you're at one, when there's a synergy between what you do vocationally and the life you're seeking to lead, your values and your vision for your life, that's when you really enjoy your work. So, so in that segment of the book, we give seven principles uh, that we think when, that I believe when we, we follow those principles, we are able to achieve that sense of work-life synergy. And ultimately, when you achieve that, that, that sense of work-life synergy, uh, that's when you're more at one. And, and where we conclude is, I believe, as a person of faith, that's when our work ultimately glorifies God. Well, I so appreciate how you discourage us from compartmentalizing and imagining that work is in one segment that has very little value, but then you move over to <clears throat> one's faith or <clears throat> excuse me, or, or church, and that's a different uh, value. But the seven principles that you point out uh, really help us gain perspective on the value of all of the time that is devoted uh, to work and uh, help us to put things into perspective. 
Yeah, it's so important because, again, when I think about my own, not, not professional journey, but my personal maturity and journey in life, I think early on in my career, there was sort of this thought of there's, there's work and, and then there's what I do uh, in my faith walk. Right. Uh, and the reality is, I came to conclude very early on that that was far too much dissonance, um, that when I'm spending most of my waking hours mm-hmm. pursuing my occupation and ultimately my vocation, how can I have that sort of separation? And so if, if, if God is not using right, my work experience to perfect me, that's a lot of hours of the day where I'm not growing or maturing spiritually or being perfected. If those very circumstances don't allow me to make meaningful connections with people uh, that transcend just what we do at work, I believe relationships are one of those things that transition from this life to the next. And so, again, I think that either consciously or unconsciously, we've accepted many times a false dichotomy. And what in part the book tries to do is bring uh, people back into the place where work is truly what God intended. I think it's really important. You you referenced right before the break um, how the book of Genesis begins. And I always tell people uh, the Bible is written very intentionally. And so we do not find a God at rest when we open the book. We find a God at work. And we find the same God when he introduces or forms the physical man. One of the first things that we see he introduces man Mm -hmm. to is productive work. Yeah, yeah. Who would you say is your primary audience? So this is an important question as well, because uh, at the very beginning of the book, the dedication simply says, I'm writing to the working world. And, and I truly do mean that. Uh, sometimes what happens, uh, particularly uh, when you're a person of faith, they say, well, is this just a book that's written to uh, people who are Christians or believers or, or just people who share the same faith? And I said, no. I said, certainly anything that I communicate is a reflection of that faith. Uh, but the reality is every day I go to work in a pluralistic uh, workplace and I work with people of many ethnicities, cultural backgrounds, and of many faiths. But truth is indeed evident and people connect on those truths. And I think we are all meant to have a light that shines, that ultimately reflects Christ in our lives, and is meant to touch every person that we touch. I believe that this unique perspective of work that I have is something that is intended to reach other people that are seeking a sense of meaningfulness in their work. And that can be the five 22-year-old that's fresh out of college pursuing their first uh, job. Uh, that can be uh, the wonderful individual who's coming back from serving our country in the military and looking to deploy skills that they got in their training. It can be the person that's in their late 40s having that proverbial midlife crisis, or it could be the person uh, that's 60 years old that's thinking about their legacy as they look forward in terms of how they want to deploy themselves to their work. Well, I'm glad you answered the question that way, because that is precisely the way I see the book having impact in all of those scenarios, uh, including my own. Once again, the title of the book is Discover Joy in Work, Transforming Your Occupation into Your Vocation. It's very practical. I think you'll find it uh, very helpful. And I thank you so much for the book and for taking time to share it with us today. Thank you, Georgine. Thank you. Again, my guest, Shundron Thomas, the book is published by InterVarsity Press. I think you'll find it very, very useful. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. An interesting headline for Christianity Today, Ethiopia's evangelical prime minister has won a Nobel Peace Prize. This is less than two years since he took office, prime minister, and I'm certain I won't 
pronounce his name correctly, but I believe it is Abiy Ahmed, um, has helped Ethiopia achieve a kind of peace and reconciliation that was once deemed impossible in that area. And that includes resolving a border conflict with its East African neighbor, Eritrea. Well, today, his efforts earned him the 2019 Nobel Peace Prize. Some Ethiopians have questioned whether the recognition has uh, come too soon. You'll recall Barack Obama received a Nobel Peace Prize before he had an opportunity to live up to that charge. Uh, And while that's a question being applied in this case as well, uh, the Nobel Committee stated, even if much work remains, Abe Ahmed has initiated important reforms that give many citizens hope for a better life and a brighter future, end quote. At 43 year old, uh, 43 years old, rather, he is Africa's youngest leader. He made quick and deliberate efforts toward reform when he took office back in April of 2018. He signed a peace accord with the president of Eritrea last year after decades of political stalemate, two years of violence that cost 80,000 lives along that border. The two countries have grown increasingly open to one another with resumed air travel and telecommunications, according to the New York Times. Well, the prize announcement commended his leadership, saying he spent his first 100 days as prime minister lifting the country's state of emergency, granting amnesty to thousands of political prisoners, prisoners, um, discontinuing media censorship, legalizing outlawed opposition groups, dismissing military and civilian leaders who were suspected of corruption and significant significantly increasing the influence of women in Ethiopian political and community life. He has also pledged to strengthen democracy by holding free and fair elections. Now, that's quite a laundry list and a relatively short period of time. It was reported in Christianity Today uh, previously that he also helped reconcile two branches of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church that split for political reasons back in 1999. Orthodox represent the largest religious group in that country, around 40 percent of the population, and that's compared to 19 percent Protestants, 34 percent Muslim. He fostered reconciliation between Muslims and Christians in his hometown and Beshasha. Uh, while a member of a parliament and uh, immediately began meeting with the um, patriarch of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church as prime minister, offering his support to help end the schism. Negotiations had been uh, cautiously ongoing for years, but perceptions of government opposition muted that effort until this prime minister. He is the son of a Muslim father and Orthodox mother. Um, his uh, He is a Protestant Pentecostal, or Pente, as they are called there, like Uh, many Ethiopian politicians. His faith is seen as a driving factor in his uh, push for peace. There's something of the revivalist preacher in the way he evangelizes for his vision. That's what BBC noted. He has the energy, the passion, and the certainty. Well, according to the Catholic Herald, Pentecostal beliefs correspond with a sense of hope and ambition in politics. The beguiling uh, feature of Pentecostalism is the idea that nothing is impossible, The director of the Institute for Christianity and the Common Good, Andrew DeCourt, says of this young prime minister, a member of the Full Gospel Believers Church, he told followers after taking office, we have a country that is endowed with great bounty and wealth, but is starving for love. Well, after the announcement, the prime minister tweeted, I am humbled by the decision of the Norwegian Nobel Committee. My deepest gratitude to all committed and working for peace. Uh, This award is for Ethiopia and the African continent. We shall prosper in peace. He's the 24th Nobel Peace Prize recipient from Africa. Last year, the award went in part to Dennis Makwege, a Christian doctor dedicated to healing rape victims in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So this uh, Christian leader making a significant mark in a very short period of time 
receiving the Nobel Peace Prize. Well, taking a look at the calendar, tomorrow is our Pastor Appreciation Breakfast. Looking forward to hosting uh, nearly 400 pastors who will be joining us to hear a message from Dr. David Jeremiah, who will also be there um, tomorrow morning. And it's going to be a, a wonderful opportunity for us to just extend on um, our behalf and on your behalf as well, our gratitude for the men and women who serve among us in a, a, a line of work that can be uh, very discouraging and challenging. So our effort is to, on behalf of the body of Christ, to just express our appreciation, to acknowledge that we do not see ourselves as a Christian radio station, a replacement for the church, or we want to encourage and enable these pastors as uh, is possible uh, to continue to do the work that they have been called to do. So that will be our effort tomorrow uh, morning, which will begin for some of us very, very, very early. And then on Wednesday, I'm looking forward to a conversation with Dean Reuter. He's the author of Hidden Nazi, the untold story of America's deal with the devil. The book is published by Regnery, and it's a historic uh, Regnery historic book uh, that tells us a little bit of the behind-the-scenes uh, story of um, alliances that were made that were little known, that were uh, certainly unflattering in terms of our uh, engagement with uh, uh, with Germany at that time. On Thursday, uh, we were able to reschedule a conversation I had anticipated and prepared for last week with Michael Barone. His book is titled How America's Political Parties Change and How They Don't. The book is published by Encounter, and we're hoping all things uh, turn out well. He'll be with us on Thursday. And then on Friday, I expect to be right here behind the mic, uh, having a bit of fun as we take a look at the lighter side of the news uh, for a live program on Friday. So looking forward uh, to that. I had a conversation earlier in the program with Lathan Watts. If you didn't have an opportunity to listen, you can go to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. My conversation was in the final segment of the first hour of this program with Lathan Watts. He is the director of legal communications for First Liberty Institute. We talked about one of the Democratic presidential hopefuls who was much more explicit than his rivals, but each of whom made... Uh, more veiled references, but Beto O'Rourke called to end the tax-exempt status for any church that opposes same-sex marriage. Uh, and uh, we talked about the legal, legal ramifications, whether or not this was um, an unusual request, if there had been any opportunity prior to this uh, town hall meeting on the Equality Act, as it's called, um, uh, that they have represented um, in court. So we're, we talked with Lathan Watts about that. And if you'd like to hear that conversation, as it has some pretty broad potential implications, it's not likely to go very far because the court has already spoken to the subject. But nonetheless, you can pick that up at kpdq.com and look for the Georgine Rice Show, where there you can uh, hear conversations that we've had on the program. Uh, and they are listed by date. They don't, um, they're in, I believe the content is in some order, but uh, it doesn't tell you what time a particular thing you're interested in hearing. Uh, can be found on the recording, but I will mention that my conversation with uh, Lathan Watts was in the final segment of the first hour of today's program. So check that out and any of the other interviews that you may want to uh, hear or listen to a second time uh, that we've featured here on the program. Once again, tomorrow uh, we'll pay the, ble- the best of the Georgine Rice Show as I'll be helping to host the Pastor Appreciation event tomorrow morning. On Wednesday, Dean Reuter will be my guest, Hidden Nazi, the untold story of America's deal with the devil. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, although he's out and a bit under the weather today, Clark Hilton for engineering. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Appreciate it very much. Hope you'll join us right here tomorrow. I'll be back live in studio on Wednesday. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.